nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. In a moment or two, we're going to read a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture. As I bring to you the annual State of the Church address, reflecting on the state of current evangelicalism, the challenges that we face, the problems on the horizon, and the corrections that I believe are absolutely necessary if we're going to sustain the testimony of the church in an increasingly darkening age. As we reflect upon these things, I want you to be encouraged. First, that God told you that this was going to happen. He told us that in the end there would be a falling away from the truth. He warned us that we needed to stay the course, to hold the line, to trust Him. And I sense that even in the context of of the local church, part of our failure to keep that perspective is the failure to behold our God. Our attention has been caught by everything outside of that realm when in fact, when we see God for who He is, there is a peace that settles onto our soul that nobody can take away from us. We have an amazing God who can give Him counsel. We have an amazing God who died for our sins. We have an amazing God who is in control of absolutely everything. And while it appears that things are out of control today, He will reign forever. Are you thankful for that? This is temporary but sometimes it's painful. Sometimes reality hits us where we're most vulnerable. Sometimes we're prone to to fear what lies ahead. Sometimes we fail to see His glory. That's a common experience for all of us. And it's at those times that we need some of the reminders that we will focus on this morning. When it comes to this world, the Gospel of John gives us great clarity as to what is going on. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As I wrote my report in the annual report, perhaps you wrote it, perhaps or read it, perhaps you didn't, I talked about the political, social, moral, and religious state of the culture. I talked a little bit about the reality of world leaders proclaiming that they were going to bring to pass a fundamental transformation of the United States and the West. And any thinking person understands that the fundamental transformative holistic change intended demands major shifts in how we understand truth, how we know truth. Morality, how we live truth, ethics, what guides that truth, and a huge, significant impact on politics 
and even the family. A holistic transformation away from the Judeo-Christian ethos complicates everything. Every aspect of life is exposed. Unfortunately, I also pointed out that the response of the church has been to curse the darkness and to cast blame upon the cultural elites, holding them solely responsible for the demise of the West. Now listen carefully, because this caveat matters. I do believe that you need to be engaged in politics. I do believe that your voice needs to be heard. I do believe you need to hold our elected officials accountable. I do believe that we ought to be involved actively in voting. We don't turn a blind eye to this stuff. We must address it head on. But I suggest to you humbly that the real problem is not in the presidency or the Congress or even in the Supreme Court. I sense that the loss of this Judeo-Christian ethos rests upon the shoulders of the church. We have failed to be salt and light. We failed to take a stand. We've been lured away by these false and vain philosophies, promising us that, that, that the outcome of all of this is dependent on something that has never been dependent upon. You want to know the outcome of all things and who is dependent upon? It is the God who sits on the throne, who knows the end from the beginning, who raises up kings and takes them off their thrones but reminds all of us that He shall reign forever. The church is responsible for upholding and proclaiming and teaching and influencing the culture with true truth that is grounded in biblical morality and biblical ethics. And I fear that when change takes place, we would rather point a finger of blame rather than look internally and how the church should respond and reflect upon what went wrong and, and how we got there. I told you in the report that I would address some of those things this morning. I think key things over the last hundred years that have led to the condition of salt and light and the church's role in our culture today. I had a seven-page report. That's just way too long. The change starts when God's people stop cursing the darkness and turn on the light. Stop complaining and stand up for the truth that sets men free, that they might be free indeed. To that end, there is indeed a great reset that is taking place in our culture. There is a ruling class for sure that is making some of these substantial changes, but they're not making them in a vacuum. And much of the change and the breakdown of the Judeo-Christian ethos has transpired over the course of a hundred years in evangelicalism. And they are the product of the downfall of salt and lights. They are not the reason for it. Do you think these politicians have any control over God's people in the church? Your God is too small. As we reflect upon this, we understand that chaos and confusion and change seem to rule the day today, and it is because of a rejection of God, or at least a redefining of God. Let me point out to you yet again that even on the left, there is a religion that has a, a message of salvation, and the message of salvation is in social change and not in the God who created all things, but it's still a message of salvation. 
on the left, this message of salvation has a plan of redemption. But the plan of redemption is for you to be obedient and follow these cultural elites, not the God who is over all things. There's been this, this shift, a Romans 1 shift, where our culture is worshiping the creature rather than the creator, ourselves rather than the God who created all things. There is indeed a message of apocalypse in the religion of the left. Things are going to fall apart if we don't do this. A chuckle. Sometimes I'm sarcastic. You know that. When I look at this climate change, if I don't recycle, the world is going to end. This world will end when God says so. It doesn't absolve you of your responsibility. You see the subtleness of that? We have to do our part. We have to play our role, and we have to be salt and light, but let's be perfectly clear. God is not dependent on you nor I for the way this is all going to transpire. He calls the shots, and that's why I tell you all the time everything's going to be okay. It doesn't eliminate the notion, well, why is he doing this? And why did he let this happen? Those will always be questions because no one has known the mind of the Lord and no one has been his counselor. He doesn't have to consult with us. Make no mistake, the truth of the Word reminds us constantly that he's in charge. And where will the restoration of this culture come from when the kingdom comes in the person of Jesus Christ and he sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That's when the kingdom will be here. That's when the right will finally be a reality. That's when he sets straight the crooked things of this world. Don't buy into this kingdom now, because in this world you will have tribulation. And that just poses all kinds of challenges for the church. In critical writings on historic contemporary evangelicalism, Carl Truman says it this way, cultural shifts has always presented great challenges to the church and will con certainly continue to do so. The church must also tr always tread a difficult path. On the one hand, avoiding compromise with the world, yet on the other hand, being sensitive to the world around us, not creating unbiblical barriers which hinder the work of the gospel and always prepared to use different approaches and strategies in different situations to get the truth to a lost and dying world. But until He comes, the world groans. Until He comes, sin has tainted and will continue to taint everything. Until He comes, there will be this continued deterioration as He takes off His restraining hand of the evil in our culture today for the culmination of world of events where Jesus Christ will stand from his throne and finally say, okay, this is enough. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. As we wrestle with these things, Paul describes them to us in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read a lengthy passage. Follow along, if you would please, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We could stop right there, couldn't we? Paul says, hang on. It's, it's going to get better. You can't imagine what, what is coming. 
It says in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility through sin, of course, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called to His purpose, for those who He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So what shall we say to these things, these groanings and the condition of the world? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with Him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famineness, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said, what a great text. This is the way it is, and this is the way it will be, and this is the person who guarantees it by His grace. What a great text for the culture that we live in today. Father, I pray that you might bless us. We reflect upon these truths, give us clarity in our thinking, discernment in the Scriptures, understanding by your Spirit, and grant us great hope, grounded in amazing grace, found in Christ alone for the glory of God forever 
and forever and forever. Bless us as we discuss these issues and attain to these matters for your glory this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In this same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we reflect upon the state of the culture and understand our responsibility as salt and light, we must take ownership of this Judeo-Christian ethos. It's sustaining work in our culture, an answer or an antidote to the problems of life and, and the culture, and rounded and, and, and rooted in the one who gives light, the light of the world, Christ Himself. So as we stop to think about us being the solution, we also have to consider how we got here in current and contemporary evangelicalism. I call it the arc of modern evangelicalism. How and what happened over the course of time to get us to this place, and we will address that place throughout the message, to get us to this place where we seem to have lost our perspective on some very important issues. I'm going to share with you about, uh, that, I, that I believe there are several things that have contributed to the state of evangelicalism today and its lack of saltiness and the bushel that has been put over the light. It starts a hundred years ago when the church, as, as modernism became a, a reality, began to rethink because of the scientific revolution the, the teachings of the Scripture. And they began to look at the Scripture and, and understand that the Scripture was really kind of a, parallel, a parable or a story. It could not necessarily mean what it said. There's no way that God could create this world from nothing. Your God is too small. There's no way that God could do this in six days. Your God is too small. There's no way that a man rises from the dead. Your God is too small. You see, the challenging of these miracles and the supernatural nature of Scripture was really an affront and challenge to the character and nature of God. They began to shrink God, <coughs> and in so doing, mankind became giants in their own mind. In 1923, J. Gresham Machen published a landmark book that was just reissued this past year at the 100th anniversary of its publication called Christianity and Liberalism. He had had enough. He had seen the deterioration of a high view of Scripture. He had seen how the church had pulled away from the great doctrines of the faith he had seen where the church was going through this metamorphosis away from truth 
to some kind of social inter- interaction and, and kingdom now kind of philosophy. And he is warning in a very prescient kind of way the church, particularly his denomination, what the consequences of that might be. We can now read that book 100 years later and know that he was spot on in predicting the consequences for the church when they gave up the clear fact and teaching of Scripture, turning it into some myth or story that had little significance in our lives. The fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity is simple. Liberalism is rooted into what do we need to do, and Christianity begins with this is what God has done. See the difference there? Until you know what God has done, you'll never know what you're supposed to do. But when you reverse those things, what you do becomes a means to God, and that denies the very grace of God that we've been studying for the last couple of months. We're going to talk a lot about grace this morning. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces and proclaims in a prophetic manner a gracious act of God speaking into a sinful world and rescuing it for all eternity. There's a big fight a hundred years ago as to the main doctrines of Scripture and if the church would hold to them. When you do away with all things supernatural, you must cast doubt on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must cast doubt on the virgin birth. You must cast doubt on the creation story, and that brings doubt on the salvific story of Scripture found in the gospel. You see, to change away from absolute truth to social interaction or feelings has dire consequences. That denomination faced those consequences like most mainline denominations have, and the adoption of a social gospel meant the demise of the church and the decline of the church and the elimination of the church. There was nothing like God intended it be. I believe that's a huge thing in our culture today. What is the source of truth? Transformation that is tied to truth begs the question, where and what is truth? Pilate was right on that. What, what is true? Well, we can tell them, can't, can't we? Because we have the Scripture. I also believe that, that when these things started to change and gradually over this modernism that, that, quite frankly, was devastating on mainline denominations, they virtually don't exist anymore. And if they do, they're simple social agencies, devoid of the gospel, powerless to bring any kind of change into this world. But what happens when, when that gets kind of situated or, or dominant in the church? Well, you begin to think that the kingdom of God is now instead of reflecting upon the Scriptures. And if the kingdom of God is now, it is us who own the responsibility to bring to pass that kingdom. And we bring to pass that kingdom by doing all of these things. When I was first in Bible college, preparing for the ministry, it was 1979. It might not mean anything to you other than I'm old. But that was the beginning of the moral majority. Remember that? And the majority, moral majority seemed to buy into this kingdom now mentality 
And if we could somehow get a new president and a new Congress and a new Supreme Court, Christianity would prevail. They put all their trust in the wrong thing. In 1989, when the moral majority collapsed, they realized that that was a terrible mistake. And at the neglect of the gospel, they became so politically charged and engaged that they forgot the first things. I believe that we are dangerously close to that in evangelicalism today. We're putting all of these eggs in the basket that we have to elect this man here. Do your part and play your role, but God will decide who sits on that throne. And He will superside over them. And His will will be done. You, you understand that, don't you? We can do all of the right things in this world and leave the world better off, but without the hope of the gospel. And are they really better off if we do that? The moral majority is rearing its ugly head again, and Christianity is believing that somehow this political election is the end all. The world will end on this election. The world will end when God says it's done. Hang on. This may not turn out the way you want it to turn out. But God didn't ask us for our opinion. He's not waiting for our counsel. He's saying, will you trust me? As we look at what happened in the context of that liberalism, there's a new liberalism taking place in evangelicalism today. And this new liberalism has been dubbed by Brian Laughlin and Doug Ponder as functional liberalism. I believe this is the big issue in evangelicalism today. We no longer attack the major doctrines of the faith. We give lip service to the deity of Christ, lip service to the virgin birth, lip service to the creation account, lip service to, to in Christ alone, lip service to all of those historic orthodox traditions and doctrines of the faith. The problem is it is so truncated it doesn't matter in how we live. We have taken great orthodoxy and divorced it from what we call orthopraxy. This is what this means. If this is true, this is how you live. And that is the number one problem in evangelicalism today. Yes, the Bible says this is wrong and an abomination, but if we're going to live in this world, we need to make peace with those people and those behaviors. We, we need everybody to get along. You see how dangerous that becomes? And we say, wait a second, don't you believe in the Bible? I absolutely believe the Bible. They're offended when we call them on it. Well, then how can you hold that position if you absolutely believe in the Bible? I, I, I don't understand. It's recently created a huge storm for a very familiar face in Reformed theology and evangelicalism today. You see, what we believe and what we cling to has got to make a difference in how we live, or else it doesn't mean anything. It's not really true. And this functional liberalism, where there's a head nod to the orthodox tradition of truth, and yet a disconnect in the way we live our life, is deeply troubling. Functional liberalism is based on experience instead of divine revelation. It cloaks all of its doctrinal affirmations and moral judgments in subjective terminology such as, for me, this is right, or I feel like, or, well, I just ne It never says God said. It never said the Bible speaks. It never says the Lord commands. It is always through the filter and reference of mankind. There are dire ramifications for that. But I also believe 
that the re-imaging of the role of the pastor has played a significant role in the demise of the evangelical church. When we embrace this social change and this process of reaching into the community and going after the seekers and making the gospel a little bit more palatable to, to an unbeliever, reimagine the role of a pastor, and that role of the pastor was now a social change agent. He became a motivational speaker. In many ways, we professionalized the ministry, and we made the pastor the chaplain. Let me tell you the subtle difference there. The pastor is responsible for all of the caring and all of the visiting and all of the praying and all of the ministry, and we can just kind of sit back and let the pastor do his thing. That had dire consequences for the church. You know what the pastor is responsible for? Turn with me to 1 Timothy. Excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul writes to this young man, Timothy, the very last letter that Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. What is the role of the pastor? To preach and teach the Word. Does it mean that he's not responsible for those other things? He's just as responsible as every other member of the flock, but he's not solely responsible to make all of that happen. You see, when the pastor is responsible to do all of those other things, he doesn't have the time to do the main thing. And what is the main thing? To agonize over Scripture, to clarify the Scriptures to study it and embrace and immerse himself in the Scriptures, and with clarity and boldness bring those Scriptures to God's people to inform them how to live in this present age. You follow all that? When a pastor stops doing that, the church is void and devoid of, of any kind of answers to the problems and the complexities of life. When the pastor doesn't hide in his office and dig into the Word, and embrace that truth and eat every morsel of it, there are consequences. came across this. It said, the preacher is not merely a lecturer or a teacher. His task is not simply descriptive. His task is no less than prophetic in proclaiming the Word of God. Let me tell you what that means. The pastor's role isn't to commentate. The pastor's role isn't to give his opinion. The pastor's role is to proclaim in a prophetic manner, this is what God has said. People say, well, tell me what it means. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to pay attention to what God is saying. And the Holy Spirit lets you synthesize that into every aspect and area of our life. It's the slow, incremental impact of sitting under the Word of God week by week, year by year, 
that makes the difference in the life of the believer. It's how we mature as Christians. When the preacher preaches, if we take grace seriously, we need to listen actively to what he is saying and understand what the Spirit is directing us to do. That's powerful stuff. The job of the preacher is not to tell you how to live, not to deal with the latest crisis in your life, not to ref- reach your full potential in your base- best life now. The preacher's job is not just to describe bland, boring doctrine and outline what happened in the Scripture. The preacher's job is not to inspire warm, fuzzy feelings. The preacher's job is to proclaim the truth and press the personal existential significance of Christ on those who hear and make them realize that Christ's words and actions are of immediate and eternal significance to them. How does he do it? Take your Bibles and turn to please. Hosea warns, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. When we redefine the role of the pastor, the church is in peril. Because there's a cacophony of voices out there trying to grab your attention, and you can't trust even half of them. Probably way more than that. We need to understand that the Word of God impacts the wholeness of man. Recently, I became aware of a, a devotional published by Crossway Publishers, usually pretty reliable. By a reformed teacher, and reformed men are usually pretty reliable, who made this statement, truth not spoken in love is not truth. Put your discernment caps on. That's a false dichotomy. Truth is always truth. Truth always has to be communicated. Truth always has to be proclaimed in a prophetic kind of fashion. And indeed, it must be done out of love. But even in an unloving manner, the truth is still the truth. It doesn't change that. And here's the danger. Other people that get to decide whether Pastor Jim is loving. I agonize over the Scripture. I agonize over people in the congregation who are going through deep and dark, troublesome times. I agonize over those whose minds and hearts and behaviors are captured by sin. I agonize it. And just because I say, stop it, doesn't mean they don't love you. But today, it's considered spiritual abuse. The prophetic pastor who says, this is the way it is, deal with it, is abusive. You know what the truth is? It's the pastor who's abused. Because his job is to tell you in a declaratory prophetic kind of way, thus saith the Lord. And when you don't let him, shame on you. I am such in my personality, I'm a weirdo, all right? My calling is a reluctant calling. 
I don't, I, I don't start counting the hours on Monday morning. I can't wait to get in front of all these people. <laughs> I relish you have an opportunity that God has given you to open the book. That's what I relish. Paul says, hey, listen, when you preach the Word, be sober-minded. Not everyone's going to like it. When the preacher word and endure suffering, they'll, they'll call you abuser. When you preach the word, from that word being evangelist, just do your ministry. And what is that ministry? He tells us, preach the word. I'm not trying to shirk my responsibility. And I know there's so many other things that come with the pastorate. But if the pastor is not agonizing with the text, bringing clarity to the text, and preaching boldly in the text, he's not doing his job. But I want to remind you, in spite of all my preparation, I still get nervous when I come into the pulpit. And I'm still, be, I'm still reminded that I can't do this but by the grace of God. It's grace. The saving, sanctifying, sustaining grace of God. His justifying, saving grace is Him sending His Son into this world to die for the sins of all mankind and rescue the souls of men. It is justifying in that God was satisfied with that penalty and punishment. And God, in all of His glorious, holy nature, looks at this train wreck, Jim Murphy, and says, righteous because of my Son, Jesus Christ. Justifying grace is being declared righteous by God, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done in rescuing my soul. We are saved by grace. We are declared righteous by grace, but we are not righteous the moment of salvation. Just look in the mirror. I don't know about you, there's still a lot of work that I see that needs to be done when I look in the mirror. And it makes us dependent on sanctifying grace. I'm not spending a lot of time here because we've spent two or three months talking about it. Unless you miss those three months, I'm going to spend the next three months talking about it. Sanctifying grace is this next stage after saving grace. Once we are a child of the King, the Holy Spirit takes up His residence in our lives. And from that very moment starts to shape and fashion our lives and conform it to the image of Christ. We are still a work in progress, righteous when God looks at us, but so unrighteous in how we live. But in this sanctifying grace, God is shaping us. I mentioned it in a funeral yesterday, knocking off the sharp corners, taking the glory of His creation and making it the most that He can make it, bringing us to this place of understanding that we are to live holy as He is holy. It is the will of God in Christ Jesus that we become more and more like Christ through the sanctifying grace of God. And we have to cooperate by being obedient. But listen carefully. You have no capacity to make yourself anything like Jesus Christ. It is solely the work of God by grace that He does that. Otherwise, He gives you all kinds of reason to boast like the scribes and the Pharisees. I thank God I'm not like that person. Instead of, I thank God that in the midst of this train wrecked life, 
He spoke into my soul and saved me by His Spirit. The grace of God in Christ alone. And He's changed me. I can look back on my life. He's changed me. And listen, it's not only been pleasant, but He's changed me. The sanctifying grace of God is not done until we stand in His presence and then it's complete. And until such time, we got to deal with each other. Sometimes that's not, that's not fun. But God is changing all of us. If He saved us, He's changing us with this sanctifying grace and transforming us into the image of His Son as we live in obedience to the Scripture. Well, that demands that we sit under the authority of the Scripture and a pastor who preaches the Word. And then there's something that I call sustaining grace. This is the grace of God that I'm reminded of in John chapter 15 when Jesus, dealing with his disciples, said, I want to remind you that without me you can do nothing. The sustaining grace is the grace of God in the midst of our lives that carries us through the tough times. It allows us to continue on this process of sanctification in spite of all of the roadblocks that lay in front of us. It is God's initiation and sustaining toward the completion of His holiness. It's not meritorious. The sustaining grace is not solely dependent on what we do. It is what He does alone. Listen to what Peter says about that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, he says, in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by the various trials of life, and that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We live in a terribly sinful world, and that weight of the world is sometimes just too much to bear. And at those times, God comes to us with a sustaining grace, and He compels us to keep moving forward, to keep trusting deeper, to keep believing that a better day is coming. And when we have no energy whatsoever, even to pray, the Spirit prays and intercedes on our behalf so that God knows and gives us exactly what we need. R.C. Sproul says this about sustaining grace. If God is God, and if He is the God of providence, He is truly sovereign, and nothing ever happens that is ultimately senseless. Things may appear to be without purpose or meaning, but their ultimate purpose might elude us for the present. Yet if we fail to see purpose and what happens, We must remember that our view of things is limited by our earthly perspective. The eternal perspective belongs to God. He is the infinite one who understands. He is truly sovereign. He is never senseless. So Paul says, so we don't lose heart. 
Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. I love that. This is only for time. And right now you think it's the worst time of your life, but there's going to come a time where you look back and say that was light and momentary compared to the eternal greatness of his glory. I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to that day. For now, we understand. And I want you to know that the justifying, sanctifying, sustaining grace of God gives us perspective in the darkest of times, provides hope when we feel hopeless, and gives us peace when our hearts are restless, gives us promise in the seasons of doubts. We're indeed a people of grace. Our lives in every aspect are governed by the sustaining, saving grace of God. And that's the only thing that guarantees that you're going to make it. So important. Pastor Jim, how do I know I'm going to be there? Because God has secured it in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how you know justifying, sanctifying, sustaining grace. Even when you don't see it, your life depends upon it. So Paul in the book of Romans was able then to say, so what does all this mean? Can anyone rob this? He said, no. And all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, how about that for a message? It's going to be okay. God, God's got this. And although we have responsibilities as salt and light, We are incapable of sustaining anything. We have a God who sustains everything. At times I've been dragging my leg around and I'm like, God, what's the deal here? Don't you? I hear this still small voice sometimes is nagging. Don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? You think I don't know? Some of you live your life like God doesn't know your name. I'm broken for you. He does. If He saved you, He is working in you, and He is sanctifying you, and nothing that comes into your life, nothing, will keep Him from sustaining you until the day you stand in His presence. That's a glorious message, but it's all by grace in Jesus Christ. So Paul he writes to the church of Thessalonica, says, so now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. Surely he will do it. And that's what we have to hang on to in this world. That's what we have to cling to in the darkest of days. That's what we have. And it is my prayer that the hope of Christ directs your lives and defines your future. And that hope is grounded in saving, sanctifying, and sustaining grace as you wait, just as Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, as you wait for His coming. 
and he's coming. And in the midst of all of that, with John, we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. Oh, by the way, God's in charge of that too. So we wait, and we wait, and we wait, but we know a better day is coming. Father, bless us with these simple truths and reminders that are so glorious, the context of our life, the situations that we wrestle with on a regular basis. Forgive us from turning away from you and your word to other things, believing that somehow that's not enough. May it always be enough for us to hope in you, a confident expectation. May it always be enough to know that the sustaining grace of God will get us through. May it always be enough to know that the sanctifying grace of God will eventually bring glorification when we stand in the presence of our King with no sin for the glory of God alone. Perilous times, powerful truth. May it set us free indeed, and may we live soberly and righteous in this present age. In light of that hope and grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.